This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with veteran broadcaster, lawyer and author John Fain. John joined me to discuss his new book, Apollo and Thelma, A True Tall Tale. John tells the astonishing true story of the world's strongest man, Paul Anderson, also known as the Mighty Apollo. He also tells us about Apollo's sister, Thelma, a pioneering publican of the Wander Inn at Top Springs in the Northern Territory. As John was Apollo's lawyer, he reckons with his own story too. This book is brilliant and it is many things at once. A memoir, a true story and a reflection on Australia's history and the fight for Indigenous rights. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome onto this show John Fain, who is known to pretty much everyone in Melbourne, I would hope, but if he's not, he is a lawyer and an award-winning broadcaster who happened to host the agenda-setting morning broadcast program on ABC Radio 774. It was called Mornings, and I was myself a very regular listener at the beginning due to my parents and later by choice. And he hosted that program for over 20 years. He also practiced for seven years in commercial litigation and in legal aid, um, including the Fitzroy Legal Aid Service, which does come up in this wonderful book that John has written. And uh, also, I was really interested that he hosted the Law Report on RN on ABC before he went into uh, morning radio. So we're here today to talk with John Fain about his book, Apollo and Thelma, A True Tall Tale. It's out through Hardy Grant Books. And as I said, it is my real pleasure to welcome John onto the show. Hi there, John. And it's my pleasure to join you, Amy, and hello to everybody who's listening. Indeed. I've got to say it's really exciting for me to interview you for a second time, which I don't think you'll remember the first because I was a very, very nerdy year 12 student who was doing media studies and reached out to you in 2006 to interview you for my documentary about uh, youth political apathy. So now now that I look back on that, it was quite ambitious, but I, I appreciate your time then as much as I do now. Well, good on you for having had a go. And uh, was I horrible to you? <laughs> no, no, no. You were very kind. I'm, I'm reassured. Yeah. <laughs> John, it's so hard to know where to start in Apollo and Thelma because there are so many parts to this story and it is just enthralling to read. I did read the entire book and it's oh, just, you. yeah, no, every page was a page turner, I've got to say. I just loved the way that you wrote it. And I think in particular, you take us into your confidence in a way that is really warm and generous. I kind of read it thinking of you having a bit of a twinkle in your eye when you were perhaps writing it, because a lot of mischief comes through as well. Thank you. And I guess, I mean, it's a pretty untidy book according to the the conventions of publishing. It's not about just one thing. But it's up to you to tell me whether or not I managed to connect all the different strands. It's a bit untidy, but then our minds are usually untidy too, aren't they? So what happened is I I had this, the nucleus of the story, which is Apollo and Thelma's stories, and then it grew from there. And as it grew, I guess I sort of trusted myself to follow the threads, to tease out the threads and chase them, and then somehow make sure that they all came together again. And uh, it's, it's up to you and others who read it to tell me whether I've succeeded or not, but certainly that, that was my ambition. Well, 
I think you succeeded. Uh, when I read the, the description, I was apprehensive because I did wonder how it could all fit together in this neat story, but it really does. And the same characters keep appearing. So, you know, you see people like Frank Hardy, Gough Whitlam. There's just many, many pieces that come back together. Some of your old colleagues from, you know, legal days stop in and people from Darwin multiple times. So it is a really fascinating story because it's touching on personal biography, but also it's really bringing out some very important broader societal issues, which I hope we'll get to in a bit of detail later on in this chat. But first of all, I wanted to introduce the characters of the title of the book, Apollo and Thelma. I grew up not knowing who the mighty Apollo was or is, but I did check out the National Film and Sound Archives after reading this book because I wanted to know was it really true? Like, could he have possibly done this? And I know you say you were pretty sceptical too. So could you tell us a bit about the mighty Apollo? Sure. He became my favourite client when I was a baby lawyer back in 1982. And he came into the law firm. I'd done articles in 81 and I was a first year solicitor in 82. And my boss was a commercial litigator and I was being trained to become one too. And I did. And uh, he called me into his office one day and said, we've got some new clients coming in. I want you to sit in on the initial conference because uh, you'll probably have the carriage of this. And I thus met Paul Alexander McPherson Anderson and his three then teenage sons. They'd inherited the estate of Paul's sister, Thelma. So Paul is Apollo, the mighty Apollo, the world's strongest man, although I didn't know it at the time. He was just a fitness instructor as best as I knew. And his sister died very suddenly at a place called Top Springs in the Northern Territory. And she had a pub. She'd For years and years and years, she'd run a pub on her own in the middle of the roughest part of the outback, which was quite a remarkable thing. And she died very unexpectedly and suddenly. And she'd left her estate to her nephews in Melbourne. And because they were underage, their father, the mighty Apollo, was their guardian and became the person who I had to liaise with in order to work out how to sort out what in fact turned out to be a a very quirky and in some ways complex estate full of all sorts of twists and turns, which captivated me, but more than just the dry legal story of the estate, because that's not what the book's about. It's the background to the book. I got to know Apollo as my client. And as I say in the opening line of the book, I, I got to know Thelma. I only met Thelma Hawkes after she died. Her brother, the mighty Apollo, introduced us. To tell you their story, I have to tell you some of mine. And it dawned on me that by being a lawyer doing a probate, you actually are getting to know the deceased whose estate you're administering. And over time, and it took many, many years to resolve this estate for a whole range of reasons that are explained in the book, but I'm happy to go into them if you want to, but some of them are hilarious and some of them are, are outrageous. Uh, but I, over the years, had to try and unpick the various knots that came up from the death of Thelma Hawkes. The characters are rich, and even back then, even though I hadn't even dreamt of going to work in the media, I knew that this was unusual, that this was rich, exceptional material, that, that they were fascinating people. And in fact, Apollo, the, the mighty Apollo, the, the client, became my favourite client, and I became quite fond of him. And I, I certainly hope that's how he comes across as a charismatic and enigmatic figure and um, someone I dealt with over many years. Yeah, he was appealing to me in many ways. So I also very much empathised with him as a person. I could see that he had this confidence and a focus on himself as this... He's very vain, yeah. Yeah, that this kind of all-encompassing mighty Apollo identity that ruled his life. I'm not sure whether he let it rule him or vice versa, but it just was so fascinating to 
understand that a person had that much self-belief in themselves. Oh, extraordinary. He could do things, and this is inexplicable, even now. Mm. And I've spent years doing this. I mean, this was back in 1981, 82. I've, I've lived with this story for 40 years, and I still don't understand how he could do the things he could do. And when you say, Amy, that you, you empathise with him, I, I'm sure you haven't had an elephant stand on you and survived to talk about it, and you haven't pulled a tram down the main street of Melbourne with a toggle in your teeth. And you haven't done all those feats of strength lying on a bed of nails while cars drive over your body. I mean, he did these things and even to this day, nobody can understand how he was able to do these things. He said Mm. he had cosmic powers. He had special powers. And I'm not sure he had cosmic powers of strength, although he was phenomenally strong, but I'm pretty sure he had some special power that meant he couldn't feel pain the way everybody else does. He could block out pain and that way do things the rest of us can't do. And it's quite inexplicable. And I I spend a bit of time in the book trying to work it out. And I don't think at any point I, I never come up with a clear answer. It is... It is a puzzle. I mean, maybe he did have special powers. Maybe he did. We'll never know. Yeah, it seems like a medical or scientific mystery to me in a way. And maybe he had thicker skin, like quite literally, because as you show, there's a photo of him after lying on the bed of nails and he's not like dripping blood or anything. There are pinholes, but... You know, he just does seem superhuman in many respects. And the fact that he did that elephant uh, wasn't a stunt, as you point out. He'd get very cross. If you said anything was a stunt, he would correct you and say, no, these aren't stunts. Stunts are like what magicians do where they trick people. No, no, these are genuine feats of strength. And Mm. I am the world's strongest man. Now, you know, he wasn't a huge man. In fact, he was shorter than me. You know, he was five and a half feet tall, not even. Uh, but as one of his sons, his youngest son, Bruce, says, he was built like a fire plug, like a fire hydrant. You just couldn't knock him over. And even when he was at the sort of age, I'm 65 now, and when he was my age and older, he was still doing extraordinary challenges. He would do them for charity. He would do them for the community good. And he just got a kick out of it. And he was still at a time when most men... Uh, of his age would be, you know, down the bowls club or sitting back and reading a good book. He was out there having cars drive over his body while he lay on a bed of nails. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, the elephant did actually stand on him twice, as you say, because they needed to do it a second time for the record books. Yes. And, and the cameras and, you know, he, you know, he he suffered terrible injuries from it, but he did live to talk Mm. about it. And, you know, it's quite extraordinary if you stop and think, okay, an elephant stood on his body and he used to do another thing where he would have there'd be a tug of war with two teams on either side of him with the rope around his neck and he would defy them wow to choke him and he had a very raspy voice and um, some of the National Film and Sound Archive material you might have found some of the newsreel material and other things there's a bit on the internet about him and he had this very raspy voice very raspy voice, and that was because he'd suffered a number of throat injuries in the course of doing some of his extraordinary feats of strength. But uh, it, it, it never stopped him. It didn't matter what happened to him. It didn't stop him. He kept going. And Thelma, so I never met Thelma because she died. That's why I got involved because we were doing her probate. But I, once I became fascinated with their story and I started work at the ABC, any time I went up to Darwin in the Northern Territory for work, I'd look for people who had stories to tell 
about Thelma Hawkes and the Top Springs pub. And the pub's still there. It's, you know, it's still running. It's at the intersection of two dirt roads. It's two and a half hours west of Catherine, heading towards Western Australia. In the middle of absolutely nowhere, there's this pub that's been built. Originally, it was a trading store and it was built for the, for the mustering along what's called the Murunjai Track. There used to be enormous herds of cattle that were taken to market from the huge cattle stations that are the size of European nations up there. And this was the store at a watering hole. And then it became a pub. And then Thelma, after various suspicious fires, two of them, she'd rebuild it bigger and bigger. And then she built this enormous structure that's completely out of keeping with the area. And that was her empire. And she ran it with a, with a pistol in her pocket and uh, a formidable reputation. And she amassed a considerable fortune. And then she very suddenly died. And there's a story which we won't perhaps give away about a cop and a frog and a dog and a tin full of cash. And that was part of the foundation story of the estate. And it had me absolutely intrigued. And uh, I thought, wow, she's a character. I mean, a woman on her own running a pub in the middle of the outback for decades and ruling it with an iron fist. I mean, she had a fearsome reputation and a terrible nickname, which I do reveal. I don't know if you want me to reveal it on your program, Amy. I'll go for it, John. Okay. Well, her nickname was Old Leather Tits. And she was regarded as you know, she was a bit of a looker in her younger years, but as she got older, people were just scared of her, basically, because she was ferocious. She also had a reputation for being somewhat enamoured with money. And she and her husband, Sid Hawkes, who I met and interviewed at length in Darwin many years ago, they fell out over money. And as he says, she just loved, she worshipped money and nothing would get in the way of Thelma Hawkes getting to some money, including her marriage. And he blames himself a bit for the collapse of the marriage and says, oh, I was away because he was a truck driver and he was running a fleet of trucks and he was away a lot. And he said, but then he came back and found she was stealing their money and socking it away in secret bank accounts. And he thought, oh, she's going to do a runner and leave me with all the debts and disappear with all the cash. Uh, and he said, oh, I realised what was going on and worked out, and I love this phrase, I worked out we were going to have to split the blanket I've never, I've never heard anyone else use that phrase for a divorce, but um, it's a messy, messy parting of the ways, as I explain in the book. And Sid's an extraordinary character, her ex-husband. There's a whole chapter devoted to him, but he could, quite frankly, Amy, he could be a book on his own. And Sid tells a lot of the background to what was going on at Top Springs when they first set up after World War II. They went up to the Northern Territory on a tip-off from a mate of his in the army who said, you know, um, they're going to do the railway line from Adelaide to Alice Springs to Darwin, and there'll be a spur line out to the big cattle stations out in the Victoria River District, and whoever sets up a store where the railway station is will make a fortune. So on the basis that there was going to be a railway station somewhere near Top Springs, they went and set up a store, and of course, this is 50, 60, 70 years on now, actually, and the, the, the railway lines, the spur line out to Victoria River District has still not been built and never will be because road trains made that sort of redundant. But um, ironically, the Alice Springs to Darwin railway line has finally and at last been built, but long after Thelma or Sid ever didn't live to see it. So they set up a little store, then that became a pub and then it became a bigger and a bigger business. And then they split up and Sid disappeared and Thelma stayed on. And there's a lot of stories from people. I mean, the Territory, I don't know if you've ever been, but it's just full of characters. 
And as I started going up, and the first time I went was in 1982 for Thelma's Estate, I just fell in love with the place, even though I was such a wet-behind-the-ears, nerdy kind of Melbourne lawyer, and I was so out of place. But I loved it, and I've been going back ever since. Yeah, well, it comes through. It definitely comes through, the love for the territory and, and the people there who are very unique, as you show and demonstrate. Everyone's a character. Yeah. Every single one's a character. And the territory, you know, they crack jokes about themselves, but it is rich. Um, there's a lot of people up there who are running away from things, and there's a lot of people up there who just prefer the lifestyle, and it's exotic, and it's different, and it's real frontier stuff, although a little less now than it was even in the 1980s when I was first up there, let alone the 1950s when Thelma and Sid went up there. But the old timers, and they're a disappearing and vanishing breed now, they've got fabulous stories. And I just, I loved in the in the 80s and 90s, sitting down, talking to them, recording their yarns, and then a lot of that material, which was recorded on cassette way back in the day, a lot of that material is reproduced in the book as, uh, as part of the context of this whole story. And it leads down, and, you know, we have to come to grips with this, um, and, and, you know, I'm... I'm I'm used to asking the questions, Amy, not answering them, but we, we, we end up, I end up through a circuitous route, and you mentioned Frank Hardy before, but I end up drawing a link between Thelma and her pub at Top Springs and one of the most famous episodes in the struggle for land rights in Australia, which is the Gurindji walk-off. And the whole, you know, the Gurindji walk-off is, you know, from little things, big things grow. It's that story, the Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly song, and also that iconic photo of Gough Whitlam pouring dirt into the hands of an Aboriginal stockman whose name is Vincent Lingiari, and that's the Garingi walk-off. And Thelma's pub is the nearest pub to the cattle station, Wave Hill, where that all took place. And um, through my chance encounter at the ABC with Frank Hardy and then starting to collaborate with him on a few little projects, which I explain in the book, I ended up revisiting and re-researching the Garingi walk-off and... Uh, it took me down some fairly troubling paths, but um, ones I, I don't for a moment apologise for uh, for bringing up in the context of this story because um, some of the stuff I read, some of the stuff I learned, it's the old, you know, you can't unsee it and we have to stop looking away. And we're talking about massacres and we're talking about colonial era rape uh, yep. consistently. And mm. once I, and I, I had a reputation at the ABC for being a kind of fearless broadcaster, I suppose, if I was described in a word, and being able to ask and being prepared to ask the mongrel question. Uh, as Tony Abbott once said, he introduced me to Margie at the Boxing Day cricket test one year. And he said, oh, Margie, this is John Fain. He's the ABC's Melbourne host. And uh, he's an equal opportunity mongrel. He asks everyone the hard questions. And I said, thank you, Tony. That's the best job description anyone's ever given me. And I'll quote you, and I do. And having that reputation meant when I learned about the history of some of these massacres and some of what had gone on in the Territory back in the day, I was not prepared to leave it out. I was not prepared to say, oh, that's all a bit unpleasant. Let's pretend I didn't know that. And for personal reasons, which I also reveal, I decided this has to be part and in context, it fits in, this has to be part of the story. And so it is. It's true. And it's part of your personal story, as you show, because your stepson, Nigel, is of Aboriginal heritage. And that's a really interesting part of the story as well. And it's so great to understand how that might have influenced you in this book. It absolutely has. And I, I've you know, I had to negotiate permission from not just Nigel, who's our eldest son and his brother, Jack, but particularly my wife, Jan. 
and I had to get permission from the individual people to include their story. But it's not done gratuitously. It's done because it's part of my rationale and it's part of my motivation for breaking a what really is a 30-year silence. I mean, I've been at the ABC. I was there for 30 years. And in all that time, this was a much bitten tongue, uh, but not anymore. And the reasons I explain in the book, it's to do with what I regard as embedded and deep-seated racism in the Australian psyche and in our culture. And I've seen it with my own eyes. I've never talked about it. But I have had that situation where Jan and I are up visiting relatives in Queensland who are Aboriginal and we've been on holiday with them and we've said, oh, look, let's go and have some lunch. There's a cafe and there's no parking. Okay, well, look, you know, I'll drop you, Joe and Pat, we'll drop you at the cafe and we'll come back when we've got a park. We drive around the block, we get a park, we come back and they're standing outside the cafe and we go, oh, what's wrong? And they go, oh, they say they're full. And I go, I can see through the window, there's lots of empty tables. Well, they said they were full. They must be reserved. And I go, no, nah, that's bullshit. So I'll go into the cafe and say, have you got a table for four? And they'll go, yes, yeah, certainly, Sue. Would you like that one in the window? And I go, yeah, sure. I'll just go and get my family from outside. And when Joe and Pat walk in, jaws drop and people gape. And you just go, I can't believe this just happened, but it did. And that was not, that was only a few years ago. And we could talk till the cows come home. I could give you anecdotes and accounts and stories, um, some worse and some more trivial, but equally, equally hurtful. And, you know, Jews don't have a monopoly on guilt or nor do Jews have a monopoly on suffering, but it's my background and my, my family background coming from the Jewish community that I think makes you even more aware and sensitive to these things. And when I saw the same sort of prejudice impacting on my son and his family, I got pretty pissed off and I've thought, okay, I'll, I'll add my voice to all those others and some of them much more powerful and, str and strident and uh, better placed than me, but I'll add my voice. I won't just sit there and go, oh, well, it's, it's private and with permission. I've uh, added some of these stories into the book. Mm. Well, we will talk about the Gurindji walk-off because I loved that part of the book. It is right towards the end uh, and you do quote quite heavily um, from your experiences going there and visiting and meeting some really wonderful locals and Aboriginals there who had first-hand experience or knew people who did. So it was really wonderful to read about. But I want to also talk about the fact that this case that started with Thelma and her estate, I mean, it really did follow you around in a very uncanny way. It seemed to follow you from law firm to law firm to, you know, when you got to the legal service and you found a law firm, you could put it in so you could still work on it. So it seems like not only did it follow you, but you wanted it to kind of follow you perhaps. Well, I didn't want to lose the personal connection because apart from anything else, they were not your typical clients. I mean, they weren't commercially savvy and sophisticated and I didn't want them to go through the um, the distress and the additional expense that would be involved in having to start all over again with another lawyer. It was much easier because it was so quirky. It was much easier just for me to finish it. So I went from one law firm to another and it's a, it's regarded as poor etiquette to steal a file from a law firm. But at the same time, it's understood that if you're deeply embedded in a particular case, you can take it with you. So the costs had to be paid for the first law firm where I'd been working at Barker Hardy, and then I took it with me to Holding Redlick, where I did commercial litigation. And then when I left Holding Redlick, it was kind of three quarters finished. But you can't really look after a contested deceased estate in the Northern Territory while you're working at Fitzroy Legal Service. So I had some mates up the street, 
and they were volunteers at the legal service and they were good friends and they ran a small law firm and I said look can you can you be on the record for this file but when anything needs doing I'll just pop in and I'll read the letter I'll draft the reply and then you can sign it and send it and we'll keep doing it with me just being a kind of you know advisor and it it was perfect it meant that there was no disruption to the family and I could finish it off even though I was a legal aid lawyer by then and then I thought it was all over yes you're quite right it kept following me it kept popping up again and again and again later in my life and it sort of became like one of those you know those dinner table stories where at a dinner party when you've had a glass of wine too many and you start kind of rabbiting on it it became one of those and then over the years I thought you know there's more to this than I know there's a whole lot here there's gaps in this and I reckon I can fill them in so that's when I started interviewing people and recording on cassette all these stories about the Territory and about Apollo and chasing up different leads. And I, I had a whole box, I had a cardboard box full of stuff about Apollo and Thelma and I'd sort of toss things in whenever I found them. And then as I got busier and busier at the ABC, that box went from the back of the corner of the study, it went onto the bookshelf, then it went up the top of the bookshelf and then it went to the back corner and I kind of half forgot about it and then... Uh, after I left the ABC and I had a kind of, you know, what am I going to do now moment, I thought, well, I've always said I'm going to tell Apollo and Thelma the story, so I'm either going to do it now or I've got to stop pretending and stop bullshitting myself that I'm actually going to do it. If I don't do it now, I never will. So I got the box down and the first thing I did was I started listening to all my old interviews, some of which I'd done more than 20 years before. And it was hilarious because as soon as I started listening to them, it all came back. It was like you could almost smell the air and, you know, hear the birds in the background and all of that. And it all came back to life. And I thought, yep, there's definitely a yarn here. I just have to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And you do engage the three sons of the mighty Apollo, Paul, Mark and Bruce. Uh Yes, and this is really important. I'll jump ahead. Yeah, I start the project with their full support and cooperation, but very distressingly for me, as I'm speaking to you now, they're a bit pissed off with me and I'm really upset. I was hoping that Paul would come and launch the book in, in Carlton at the readings shop. I gave him and his brothers, I gave them the first copies I got my hands on. And I'm not going to dwell on this, but I just want it to be clear. Um... They're not entirely happy with the way I've described their family. For me, this is a story. For them, it's their lives. And they, I think they've got a kind of idealised memory of their father and I've described him as a complex character. I mean, for instance, I say he was vain and they're not happy with that. They don't think he was vain at all. They think he quite rightly was, you know, he was proud of how he looked and how he dressed, but they don't accept that, for instance, it's fair to describe him as vain. And there's a number of other things they're not happy with. And that upsets me a great deal because I was I was pretty sure I was writing something they'd be pleased with and the fact that they're annoyed with me is it's taken a bit of the shine off the personal side of it. But the story is absolutely, I stand by every single word of it. But I'm upset that three people who are really important to it are um, are annoyed and angry with me. Well, maybe they may not be as angry with you when they hear people like myself and others who read the book. I think others will be the same, and I've heard others say the same, that they truly do have a great affection for the mighty Apollo, and I never knew anything about him until I read this book. And Amy, that is almost word for word what I've said to them, that, Mm. okay, so, you know, you didn't like this little line and you didn't like that word, but overall... That's not the impression people will get of your father. You're, you're kind of, you're getting stuck on a few little things and people are going to go, wow, what a guy. And yeah, I hope, I really hope that 
they embrace it. I really do. But he was an he was an incredible figure. So you know we 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 get into their stories too, which is really important and a terribly difficult part of the book, which I agonised over. And they're they're very happy with the way their personal stories are told because their stories are themselves as three small boys. They were abandoned by their mother. So Apollo was married to a woman called Rhonda, who was one of the women he was working with in performances and they fell in love and then they had three children after they were married and she then vanished on them. She shot through, she ran away with one of the fitness instructors from the gym, one of the martial arts instructors, and she just vanished from their lives. She dropped them at school one day and just wasn't there to pick them up after school. And, you know, five, seven and nine years old and your mother just disappears and they were put into institutional care and they were brutalised and they have given their account and that is they're very happy with the way all of that's described. They have no quibble whatsoever. Two of them hate their mother. One of them has a, has a relationship with her. The other two refuse to. Um, Bruce, the youngest one, he says, when I was interviewing him for the book, uh, he said, Rhonda, the bitch, she ruined my life. I hope she rots in hell. And I went, yeah, okay, I, I understand how deep the pain is, Bruce, but what do you want me to put in the book? Rhonda, the bitch, she ruined my life. I hope she rots in hell. And I said, are you sure you really want that in the book? Hang on, John. Rhonda, the bitch, I hope she rots in hell. She ruined my life. Did you get that word for word? And the the oldest son, Paul, won't even say her name. She's just the incubator. Now, I've never met anybody who refuses to say their mother's name and will call her only an incubator. That's the extent of the the hurt that was caused, and those are their stories. And it's all in there as yet another kind of detour and but an important part of trying to understand Apollo and Thelma and what was going on. And I, her leaving Apollo had a massive effect on him as well as the children. I mean, he had a breakdown, and I mean... I couldn't believe that those children, they were in state care for their entire childhood. Their mother said she wanted nothing to do with them at all. She was very, very clear about it, just no communication whatsoever. I can understand where they're coming from in terms of the way that they feel because it has actually affected their entire life trajectory and their father's. Totally. It's it's an extraordinary thing. It's the most significant moment in their lives. And Interestingly, they can't actually, between them, they can't agree on how it happened, but that's sort of almost irrelevant, but it's interesting how memory plays tricks. They've each got a different account of how they found out their mother had done a runner. But as it goes on through, you know, through the impact it had on their relationship with their father as well, because he couldn't look after them, and so they were left in state care until they were 18. And as I write, I was their lawyer. I had no idea, because I dealt with Apollo. I didn't deal with the sons direct unless they needed some money and they wanted an advance on their inheritance, in which case I would arrange for them to be sent some money here and there. But I was dealing with Apollo and I didn't know they were going through this brutal time in foster care and state care. And with hindsight and looking back now, all these years later, you kind of go, well, geez, if I'd known that, what would I have done? Would I have done things differently? Did I let them down? Maybe by being a kind of commercial lawyer worrying about the money rather than their well-being, maybe I didn't do the right thing. So there's a bit of introspection there too and a bit of a reflection on the role of lawyers because I've always been fairly, um, well, I've, I've, I've been fairly 
critical of some aspects of the practice of law, having done it for long enough to kind of decide I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. Uh, although culturally, I'm more of a lawyer than a broadcaster or a journalist. But um, I kind of look at it and go, well, maybe I didn't do such a flash job after all, because I thought I'd done really well in sorting out this estate, getting rid of all the people who were claiming money for you know a discount, making sure the boys got as much as possible. And maybe that wasn't the best thing. Maybe it would have been better to settle it up for less and quicker so they could then use the money to get out of care and go back to living with their dad. But um, hindsight's a great thing. Although they have all said, no, it wouldn't have worked. He couldn't have look, looked after us. As In fact, I quote Bruce, again, the youngest one, who says, oh, my dad wasn't like that. If you asked him the time, he'd tell you how you make a Swiss watch. He was so caught up in his career, his fame, and running the gym, uh, once Rhonda left, he really didn't know what to do with three small boys. And there was this kind of faint hope that you reference in the book about Thelma perhaps selling the pub or the inn in Top Springs and coming down to Melbourne to support the boys and live with them and Apollo. So there was always talk of that and it never happened. And mm. the middle son, Mark, has gone through and he says that his generation of kids who were put in care, they're like the stolen generation, you know, they're, they're a lost generation. And he got his records out from the welfare and he read through them and he says they... The welfare said, no, you're in state care and we won't release you to go and live in the Northern Territory in this remote pub and we don't accept, and um, as it turned out, it wasn't accepted, that that was in their best interests. But looking back now, you'd have to say, well, was it in their best interest to stay with these pretty rugged foster parents who were you know, violent, abusive, and not doing all that much for them? So that's another part of the story that has to be explored and is explored. And it, again, it was quite distressing to learn all of that. But again, you, you, can't, you can't just sort of, you can't airbrush this stuff out. Well, I really loved Bruce's description of his father, which I felt did reflect what you had written in the book. And I wanted to just quote him a little bit. Right at the end of the book, you say, he was far from a perfect father, an amazing man, but in lots of ways, a pretty crappy father with no sense of perspective. Everything else was secondary to his sense of himself. There is no point not being honest. I'm not bad mouthing him, just saying it how it was. He chased his fame at the cost of personal relationships and family. He made choices which he said were for business and he built that business and reputation all himself and was this larger than life figure. That takes a lot of maintenance. There were no tricks or fakery in what he did. He just devoted his whole life to being the mighty Apollo, whatever that meant. To me, that was a really great, very honest encapsulation of the complexity of the man, but also very self-reflective coming from his own son. Yes, his youngest son. And Apollo, had he, had, he was one of these people who always had a saying for every situation. And one of his sayings was, to be great is to be misunderstood. And he believed that. He believed that the price he paid for being great was to be misunderstood, but that wouldn't stop him from pursuing greatness. Mm. I mean, I don't want to give away the kind of, you know, conclusion of the book, but, you know, effectively what we end up with is that his sister Thelma and Apollo, these two kids who grew up in depression era, inner city, Collingwood, Carlton, uh, Clifton Hill, uh, he chased fame and she chased fortune. And he found fame and she found fortune but she died without ever getting to enjoy it. Whereas he found immortality because now there's a building 
and a street, a laneway, where his gym used to be in, in West Melbourne, named after him, Mighty Apollo Lane. And actually, there's a cafe there at the moment as well called Mighty Apollo Cafe. So he did find the, the immortality that he wanted as his legacy. And it's, um, it's kind of neat way to tie a ribbon around at almost the end of the book. It was very neat. I, do, I did like that. <laughs> I, I highlighted it. Far too much here, Amy. I know. Well, I did want to go to Thelma and we're back in Top Springs uh, because that is such a brilliant part of the story. There was a great character in that pub called Norm who was a pom who drank very heavily and didn't he even was an receive. Come on, yes. you call it for well, what it was. Well, he was an alcoholic. Uh, he was and perpetually he pissed. And had a few beers on the go at different points in the pub. And he actually slept outside practically on a camp bed. Like he just seemed to have under a veranda maybe you got a bit of shelter, but, you know, a very measly kind of existence and didn't even receive a wage. So his, he was the main claimant against the estate. He, after Thelma died, Norm, who'd worked for her for years and years and years as, as her loyal sidekick, Norm said, well, I had this deal with Thelma, which was I wouldn't draw a wage, but when she sold the pub one day, she'd pay me out half. So he claimed to own the pub. And so we had to fight him over whether or not he had a legitimate claim. And of course, he had nothing in writing. And so we had to go forensically back through all the bank statements, which were kind of fictional because she didn't go to the bank. The bank was two and a half hours drive each way. So you're not going to do a five-hour drive to go to the bank. When she did go to a bank, either in Darwin or Catherine, it was usually to sock away, you know, ten dollars or $20,000 cash in a deposit. So there were no records of anything that we could rely upon. And he could neither produce records to prove his claim, but neither could we produce records to disprove it. But there's a there's a whole lot of toing and froing, and that's described in the book to the extent that it's necessary and relevant. That sometimes lawyers' work can be pretty boring too. But there were claimants against the estate from all over the place, and she was, you know, I said she was a rogue. You know, she was famous for if there was a a muster going through, some of the stockmen would be on in cars or trucks, and some of them would be on horseback. But everyone got charged for a drum of petrol, even if you were on a horse, you got charged for a drum of petrol, and. You know, if the kids from the nearby stations came in with mum to pick up some supplies and she'd offer them a lolly and then she'd put a box of lollies on their bill and stuff like that. But then there were far worse things. Stuff kept disappearing from deliveries for other stations and it would turn up in her back in her shop and all sorts of skullduggery that she was famous for. But most people's, you know, a lot of people spoke fondly of Thelma and said, yeah, she was a rogue, but hey, you know, she was in a pretty rough and tumble place, and everyone did that sort of stuff. It was survival of the fittest. That's what it's like up there, and it's kind of true. It's pretty rough. Mm. I mean, this was a pub where when I went there in 1982, the windows didn't have glass in them and there was nothing on the floor. It was just bare concrete, and at the end of the day, the place just got hosed out. I mean, it's (laughs) rough as guts, rough as guts. It's a little better now. In fact, it's a lot better now, but back then it it was rugged. Just slightly better than when it was a wooden shack. Yeah, which is how it started. I mean, they didn't yeah. have a permit. There's no such thing as permits up there. You just basically you set up camp and waited till someone said, oh, well, I guess you're there. You may as well stay. And then they, there's a whole lot of stories about the pub and about how it became a pub and how it burned down and, you know, some of the skullduggery mm. that went on, the picnic races and people disappearing and coming back and all sorts of stuff. It's all, it's all hilarious in hindsight, but at the time it must have been quite tumultuous. 
Well, I hope people get to read that part of the book and enjoy the funny side of things when there is a funny side, including the very overpriced beer and uh, when it costs more from the cold fridge. I can't really imagine having beer that isn't cold in the Northern Territory. It sounds quite disturbing to me. Uh, but Which I did is like why she knew the... everyone would pay the extra for yes. all the cold stuff <laughs> when she claimed she needed to cover the cost of running the generator that kept the fridge cold. But of course, it was just a way of screwing everybody for a bit more money. And it worked. Yeah, it was what a classic. Yep. There's a really excellent line that you um, point out that there was a saying about it. You said some of the white drovers would stop off there after a muster, sometimes for two or three weeks and just drink and drink. And the saying was, wander in and stagger out. And wander in was the name of the pub. It sounds like that really was pretty much what it was all about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've... I've got a bit of a problem with the Territory's uh, self-regard as, you know, the sort of the drunken capital of Australia. I don't think it's healthy at all. And if anyone spent time not just in Darwin or Alice Springs or Catherine or any of the other places, but certainly the more remote you get, um, the alcohol, the rate of consumption of alcohol and the damage it causes in communities black and white is just extraordinary. And until grog gets dealt with as an issue up there, and it, it, I can't see it happening. I'm 65. I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime. Um, Territorians are mostly proud of their reputation, whereas, you know, I'll sit here and go tut tut. They'd, they'd call me a wowser and they'd say, you just don't understand the territory. Piss off back to Melbourne and get out of our lives. And I don't accept that. I think that you can see, anyone can see the damage it's doing, uh, particularly to children in, in communities and to uh, family violence, all that sort of stuff. And it's dreadful. It's absolutely dreadful. And there are, even now, there are fortunes being made by people out of exploiting the vulnerability of people who are addicted to alcohol, black and white. And those fortunes are reinvested in supporting political parties that don't challenge or threaten the supply of alcohol. So in other words, the alcohol lobby in the Territory is incredibly powerful and influential and no government is prepared to take them on because to do so is to pick a fight with people who you just can't beat. And it's terrible. It's terrible. And, you know, I don't mind having a, I'll have a, a beer or a glass of wine like anybody else, although I tend not to get drunk anymore because I just can't be bothered. And I, uh, I can see what happens up there and I, I, I don't think it's funny and I don't think it's good and I don't think it's something we should just say is part of the character of the Territory. Uh, it's it's actually, I think, a social evil. It's out of control and they ought, they ought to do what they need to do to address it. Well, it's a familiar story, isn't it, when yeah. it comes to vested interests with, you know, smoking, for example, yep. mining, all, all of these yep. kind of areas. John, I want to go to Frank Hardy and the Gurindji Walk-Off because they are interconnected and perhaps people familiar with the story might know how, but you do take us through, you know, in quite a great way, just what his role was. And he does appear in this story, as I mentioned earlier, multiple times. What a great character he was in terms of, you know, your recounting of your personal involvement with him. But could you take us through that, particularly relating to Gurindji? Certainly, Amy. I had read Power Without Glory, and anybody listening now who's never read it, I can't recommend it enough. It's a great piece of Australian literature, and it really it it's an astonishing work. It's it's a book set in Melbourne with a a, a readily recognisable family, thinly disguised, uh, who are up to their necks in corruption and skullduggery, and on and on it goes. It's a great story, and. 
I'd read Power That Glory and other books. I also recommend, if you can find a copy, The Outcasts of Fulgara, if you've, um, if you've got an appetite for Frank Hardy once you've read Power That Glory. But anyway, I'd, I'd consumed that stuff and never thought much more about it. And then when I was at the ABC, my first incarnation, as you mentioned at the start, was producing and presenting The Law Report. That's, that's how I went to the ABC as the law expert. And while I was doing the law report, you did the show each week, but then over summer you had to produce and present a summer series which had to be kind of timeless and suitable for people on holidays rather than bang, 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 you know, breaking news stories. So I'd fallen in love with the concept of oral history and I thought, well, I've been to all these sort of legal dinners where someone, some great, you know, retired judge or a lion of the bar Someone stands up and makes a hilarious speech, but no one ever records them and they're always lost. And I thought, well, actually, I can fix that. I can get some of these stories. And I started asking the oldest lawyers I could find anywhere in Australia to sit down and do an interview. And that became a summer series and a book called Taken on Oath. And one of the people I interviewed was the retired judge, Sir John Stark. And it was a hilarious interview. He's just a great raconteur and a you know, a bloke who calls a spade a bloody shovel and he doesn't spare anybody in the interview. It's just, it's extraordinary. And one of the things he did was he was counsel in a whole lot of really interesting cases. He's the judge who had to sentence Ronald Ryan to the gallows. And he tells the story of how that was contrived by Henry Bolte, the then premier. But that, I'm getting distracted. Uh, so John Stark also told the story in answer to my questions of him about appearing in the Power That Glory trial for Frank Hardy. So now I have to explain. If if someone writes a book and it's defamatory, then the person who's defamed sues them for money, for damages. But Hardy, as the author of Power That Glory, was completely penniless. He was a communist shit-stirring activist writer and there was no point suing him for damages because he didn't have any money. And they didn't want him to pay money. They were already, the Wrens were so wealthy already. What they wanted was to shut him up. So they used an incredibly rare provision called criminal defamation, where you have to show malice. And the penalty for criminal defamation, if you win, and the police have to take the charge up, the penalty is you can go to jail and the book is banned. So the Wrens arranged for police to charge Hardy with criminal defamation. And Sir John Stark was one of his barristers and he told the story about appearing for Hardy. So when I, when I put all this to air as part of my summer series on the Law Report, I get this letter from Hardy a little while after, who's still alive and living in Carlton, who says, I hear you were talking about me. Can I come in and listen to the whole interview, not just the bits you put to air? I want to hear the unedited interview and what Stark says about me. And I went, whoa, Frank Hardy, you bet you can. How good is this? He's one of my literary heroes and a great figure in Australian literature. And so I invite him to come in and I'm sitting there knee to knee with Frank Hardy. I'm lacing up a reel-to-reel tape on a machine and sitting there while he takes notes. And at the end of it, Hardy goes, would Stark talk to me? I've got more questions for him now. I want to ask him this, 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 and this. So I get on to Sir John Stark and say, do you want another visitor? Frank Hardy wants to come and see you. And I kind of expected Stark to say, I'll piss off, go away. But he was bored. He was lonely. He was very elderly by then. And he said, yeah, sure, bring him down. So off we go. And I take Hardy down and he and Stark talk and chat away. And I get another story out of it because they're suddenly shedding light on all sorts of details about the case. And then Hardy decides, you know, you're kind of handy. You're useful, you young broadcaster, you. 
And he starts asking me to find out other things that he's been trying to work out about why he was ever prosecuted. And he believed there was a kind of Catholic mafia in the police force who'd conspired with Archbishop Mannix and the Catholic hierarchy to try and rub out this communist shit stirrer because the Catholic Church and the Communist Party were at loggerheads back in Australia. Menzies was trying to ban communism and communists were regarded as a threat to the power of of religious institutions because they wanted to shut them down. So I'm doing all this sort of ferreting around in my spare time trying to track down the copper who charged Hardy, who, who agrees to speak to us, and then before we can get to see him, Frank Hardy suddenly has a heart attack and dies. And I wake up one morning to the news that the famous Australian author Frank Hardy died overnight, and I go, oh, no, that's terrible. And I go to take some flowers around to his partner, Jenny Barrington in Carlton, and without realising it, his whole family are there his kids and their partners. And within a few days, I'm being asked, do you think the ABC would be interested in recording Frank Hardy's memorial service? And I go, blood oath we would. How about if we broadcast it live to air? And suddenly I end up being invited to be the MC of Frank Hardy's memorial service at Collingwood Town Hall with a thousand people in the hall overflowing out onto Punt Road and hundreds of thousands of people listening to us on the radio as we broadcast it live. And one of those eulogies, as well as his family and others, one of the eulogies was given by Gough Whitlam. And there I am standing on the side of the stage while Gough Whitlam, sobbing, crying openly, says how it was Hardy. It was Hardy who opened his eyes to Indigenous disadvantage because of Hardy's role inserting himself as he had as publicist for the Gurindji in the Gurindji walk-off. And another one of Hardy's books comes up called The Unlucky Australians, where he wrote the story of the Gurindji walk-off. So there I am on stage with Gough Whitlam. When he's finished, I go to usher him and help him down the stairs, and he just turns and just sobs on my shoulder. I didn't dry clean that suit for a very long time, maybe. <laughs> and it hits me. Hardy's up there at Wave Hill for the Gurindji walk-off, It's just down the road from Thelma's pub. And I go, you know what? Hardy, the shit-stirring communist activist helping the blackfellas, Thelma Hawkes, the redneck outback publican who wouldn't let them in the pub and just ripped them off when they bought takeaway. I wonder if they ever met and suddenly everything starts coming back and round again. And again, and it keeps happening later on in various ways I tell in the book. And I start to revisit the Gurindji walk-off and some of the things I find out, as I said before, about massacres and rape are truly distressing. And, you know, when you were taught Australian history, I'm sure your teacher did a fabulous job, but I'll bet you they didn't talk about massacres and rape when they were talking about Aboriginal Australians. We were taught in my era, we were taught that the best thing we could do would be to smooth the pillow of a dying race. That was the phrase, that they were inevitably heading for extinction and the best thing we could do was help them along the way and ease their path. And there were words I'd never heard and I'd never learned and I had to find out what they meant, like miscegenation, and you've got to read the book to learn what it's about. And the more I dug and the more I went into it, uh, the more astonished I was and I thought, wow, this is another very powerful part of this story that I've quite almost accidentally stumbled upon. Well, it's true, you know, in my high school experience, it was only in English, actually, in English literature that I learned about the stolen generation through rabbit-proof fence. 
Um, but we didn't talk about the massacres, frontier massacres, genocide and rape, which you do bring up very fully. So the Gurindji walk-off at Wave Hill, it's known as the birth of land rights. And we all were taught, if we were taught anything at all, that it was done because of wages and land. But when you go back and look at the documents and read the petition to the Governor-General, it says we do this for our dignity, for our land, for our wages, and then there's one more bit which has always been left out. And that extra bit is left out because it's just too hard. And those words that have been airbrushed out are, and we do it to protect our women. And I looked at it, I, I was at Kalkaringi and I'm sitting there looking at the facsimile of the, of the original that's on the wall framed and I'm reading it going, holy shit, what was that about? And then I started asking questions, reading books, doing some more research and again and again and again. And as I explain in the book, you find out about the sexual violence that was at the very core of the disputes in the early years of colonial Australia. And if we believe in truth telling and if we believe in treaty and if we believe in righting the wrongs of the past, we simply have to stop pretending it didn't happen. Canada's done this. New Zealand's done this. What is wrong with us? Exactly. You were perfectly pointing out something that I think is really the crux of this. And you were saying that towards the end there, it was about respect. It was about respect for the women, obviously, who were suffering so greatly. And one of the stories brought it out, but maybe you can remember it better than me, that they would often send off the Aboriginal men into the bush on their horses while they would drive their cars back to the women to then rape them while they were away. They'd be on a muster and they'd be taking cattle off to market. And when they were far enough away so that the Aboriginal men couldn't get back home, because they were on horseback and they had to look after thousands of cows out in the bush overnight. And the white stockmen and the ringers would get in a car, drive back, rape their daughters and their, and their wives, and then be back in camp as if nothing had happened. And, you know, it's a, a terrible, terrible story, but it's true. And it's all there if you know where to look. Yeah, and it's something that I certainly didn't realise, as you say, it was about wages. We're always told it kind of seemed like a rights situation at work. Um, it was in part, but then there's this other bit that was just too hard to talk mm. about, so nobody ever did. Well, it's about time that we did. It's about time. It's yeah. like the Me Too movement. Okay, we have to deal with this stuff. We have to be prepared to go where we need to go. And can I ask you, what do you think is needed? Because We've seen so many things like, you know, truth and reconciliation commissions, but I wonder what you in particular think might be. Well, I think be. that's what's needed and we yeah. need to be serious about it and do it properly, not mm. pay lip service to it and not go, oh, tut, 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 okay, I guess we need to get this out of the way. That's not what it's about. It's at the foundation of our nation. And if you're serious about it, it means recognising that we don't decide, you and me as two white people, we don't decide what Aboriginal people are entitled to. They have a say and we have to be prepared to listen and meet them on their terms rather than demand they come somehow to fit in on ours. And that's going to be very hard for a lot of people, you know. And as I go through in the book, you know, when Mabo was handed down by the High Court, a lot of people went, oh, shit, they're going to come and take your backyard. We're going to go through all that again. Undoubtedly, there will be a scare campaign. There will be fear-mongering, all of that. People will go, oh, hang on, all these jumped-up blackfellas, what do they think they're doing? You go, no, we're going to have to deal with this. It's going to be hard. It's going to be brutal. But we just have to do it. 
John, I've just had so much fun reading this book and talking to you about it. And as people can tell by what we've just discussed, there's so much to it and a whole lot we have not touched on. And I have so oh, yeah, many stories <laughs> that are my favourites. We it's didn't all over get the place, to. But I know. I mean, I, the, the publishers, when I submitted the fourth draft of the manuscript, <laughs> said we don't quite know what part of the bookshop this book's going to end up in. It, <laughs> it could be memoir, it could be history, it could be all sorts of things, Indigenous affairs, yeah. it could be all, you know, and, and entertainment and showbiz, it's a bit of a genre buster, but I kind of don't care about that. All I care about is I've told a story, I've told it authentically, I've told it personally, and uh, I hope people enjoy it and I hope they get something out of it other than uh, just a bit of a giggle because there's some, there's some pretty weighty issues in here along the way. Well, I think it strikes a really great balance because it does provide relief when it's needed, but it does clearly show your own social and political conscience and your personal part of the story as well. Thank you, Amy. Yeah, I hope people do get to read the book in full because it's just so engrossing. And, uh, and that they... and Thelma, a true tall tale. Yes. Party Grant Publishing in all good bookshops now. All of the good ones and even the bad ones. Well, thank you, John, for taking us through it in such an honest way and for sharing all of your obsession about this story with us. It really shines through in a beautiful way and I hope that well, everyone who reads it thank you for being so interested and taking so much time to go through the book because a lot of interviewers wouldn't bother Amy, so that's a credit to you. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.